Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's really, really haunted, Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's haunted, the podcast. Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's really, really haunted, Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's haunted, the podcast. Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's haunted, Hollywood's really, really haunted. So today is the one. About Nixon, the one with Nixon. The one with Nixon is that. The one title? with Nixon. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I have no other no, good can, title for that. that. Uh, it's me and Patrick today. What's so up? yeah. Uh, okay, so Richard Nixon. Um, if you guys haven't um, seen him as, you know, uh, on Futurama. I guess is like, you know, my biggest pop culture reference to Richard Nixon that somebody, you know, younger than us, you know, would just rec- know him from future. Oh, from the show that came out in the 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, You'll know true. Nixon from that. That's true. Yeah. That obscure spinoff <laughs> show from 10 years ago. <laughs> Where he's just ahead. You know, that's how you should know your U.S. Yes, president. That's, that's true. That's true. Yeah. I mean, for him, I guess it'd be a positive. Um, but yeah, Richard Nixon was elected the 37th president of the United States. And that was in 1969. Um, he previously served as a U.S. representative and a senator from California. Uh, after ending the fighting in Vietnam, you know, which is the broadest way to put that because you know he he basically became president and then he vietnam we obviously were losing and he decided to just bomb the hell hell out of them like in like sanctuaries and stuff like that basically to make it seem like his finger was on the button you know and then eventually he pulled everybody out um he did improve relations with the uh ussr uh, the soviet union and china um, and he also became the only president to ever resign the office as a result of the Watergate scandal, uh, which is pretty much primarily what I'm talking about. Um, but going back into who Nixon was, he was born into a poor family of Quakers in a small town of Southern California. Uh, he graduated from Duke Law School in 1937, practicing law in California, then moved with his wife, Pat, to Washington in 1942. Uh, to work for the federal government. After his active duty, he, um, when he was in the Navy during World War II, he was then elected to the House of Representatives in 1946 um, due to his work on the Alger Hiss case. Um, I was not familiar with this at all, but Alger Hiss uh, was an American government official who was accused in 1948 of having spied for the Soviet Union in the 1930s. The statutes of limitations had expired for espionage, but he was convicted of perjury in connection with his charge in 1950. Um, Basically, before the trial, he was involved in the United Nations as a U.S. State Department official and a U.N. official. Um, So he's a pretty good spy, apparently, if he was working for the State Department and for the U.N., you know, but... um, Later in life, he did uh, work as a lecturer and author, so apparently it didn't go too bad for him. He eventually did get out of prison, I guess. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Which is so funny when you hear the ending of this, you know, like Nixon, of course, you know. Um, But yeah, so he, Nixon established his reputation um, being like super anti-communism um, which made him become this national, you know, star for that in 1950. Uh, he was elected to the Senate. His running mate, Dwight Eisenhower, uh, the Republican Party's nominee in the 1952 election, um, and he he served for eight years as the vice president. He then ran for president in 1960, but lost to John F. Kennedy. Uh, then he failed again in a 1962 race for governor in California, which I didn't know he even ran. Uh, but even though he lost twice in 1968, he made another run for presidency and was elected, defeating Hubert Humphrey and George Wallace in a very close contest. 
uh, like I said, he basically in, uh, ended the combat in Vietnam, uh, which finally ended in 1973. So it was like a year before he, his four-year term was about to end. Um, and with it, the military draft. So he was obviously very popular because of that, you know, because we were we should not have been in Vietnam. Mm. Um, his and then. Uh, his uh he visited china in 1972 to improve those relations um but basically uh because i watched a couple like documentaries on this to kind of like better understand because i wasn't you know alive back then like it's really hard to know like all these things about like like when you try to describe something about like the trump presidency or the george bush presidency it's like it's easier because you lived through it and every day there was a different weird crazy thing happening Mm -hmm. you know but when you look up these things you're just getting like the four craziest you know, so, yeah. so it was interesting, like, uh, the reason that um, he was visiting China and the USSR was to improve relations and basically so that Vietnam would have no one to buy weapons from, because that's where they were buying their weapons was from these other communist um, or fascist uh, societies that were, you know, supporting Vietnam. So if they improve relationships with them and like, you know, help out their economy with our economy or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, then they'll stop selling weapons. Um, but yeah, it's like something you don't really think about. You just think, oh, he went over there and shook some hands and took some photos. And now they're best friends and everything's cool, you know, and like <laughs> you don't really see what's going on behind the behind the curtains, I guess. Um, so, yeah, like I said, he visited China and then he um, concluded the anti-ballistic missile treaty with the Soviet Union, which is interesting because of what's going on in Ukraine right now. Um, he His administration uh, transferred power from the federal government to the states, uh, which was a big step too as well. His domestic policy uh, saw him impose wage and price controls for 90 days, enforce desegregation of southern schools, establish the established the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, which is a very good thing, uh, and began the war on cancer. Additionally, his administration pushed for the Controlled Substances Act and began the war on drugs, which is all we all know is a complete failure. Mm. Um, but Isn't that his like wife was trying to like uh, um, start a dare? I think Who am I thinking of? Maybe you're right. Yeah, maybe. No, What's not... his wife's name? Something. Um, Lady Nixon. Lady Nixon. <laughs> I should know that, but I'll, maybe it comes up later. It was one of the first ladies who started Dare, and which we all know Dare was an absolute failure. You right, know, yeah, maybe it was his wife, because the war on drugs would have been, you know, probably close to around that time. Yeah, maybe it was Johnson before or something, or it was it Johnson? I don't know. Um, I think it was Miss Nixon. Yeah, maybe you're right. Yeah, if you find out, let me know. Um, so. He also presided over the Apollo 11 moon landing, which is cool. He signaled, which uh, signaled the end of space, the space race. You know, we won. He was then reelected with a historical electoral landslide in 1972, defeating George McGovern. In his second term, Nixon ordered an airlift to an airlift to resupply Israeli losses in the Yom Kippur War, uh, which was leading to a severe oil crisis here in the United States. But by 1972, uh, Nixon was running for re-election, and the United States was still in the Vietnam War, uh, and the country was deeply divided. So a forceful presidential campaign therefore seemed essential to the president and some of his key advisors. Their aggressive tactics included illegal espionage. Mm-hmm. So in May 1972, as evidence would later show, Oh, it's Miss Reagan. Reagan, okay. Yeah. Deer still has a a website. What the hell? Yeah, there's still a thing, I guess. What the hell? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That's like a... Should be like a Meow Wolf exhibit. Yeah. Meow Wolf. Please make a fake deer. Yeah, right, yeah. Exhibit. Um, So... In May 1972, um, as evidence later proved, members of Nixon's committee to re-elect the president, known as, known derisively as Creep, <laughs> committee to re-elect the president. Committee to re-elect, re-R-E. What? Yeah. Why? Broke into the Democratic National Committee's Watergate headquarters. 
They stole copies of top secret documents and bugged the office phones. The wiretaps failed to work properly, however, so on June 17th, a group of five burglars returned to the Watergate building. As they were preparing to break into the office with a new microphone, a security guard noticed someone had taped over several of the building's door locks. Mm. You know how you tape over it so it doesn't like close all the way? Mm -hmm. like, so automatic doors, door locks won't work. Mm -hmm. uh, so the guard called the police, who arrived just in time to catch them red-handed. It wasn't uh, instantly clear that the burglars were connected to the president, obviously, though suspicions were raised when detectives found copies of the re-election committee's White House phone number among their belongings. Mm. They had a fucking copy of their own, like, so dumb. Like you can't memorize a phone number. You know what I mean? Like, so, so dumb. Like, um... And it's like labeled apparently, which is even, you know, even funnier, you know, it's not even just a phone number. It's just like, this is like, that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, so in August, President Richard Nixon gave a speech in which he swore that his White House staff was not involved in the break-in. Most people believed him. And in November 1972, he was reelected, like I said, in a landslide. It later came to light that Nixon was not being truthful. A few days after the break-in, for instance... Uh, he arranged to provide hundreds of thousands of dollars in hush money to the burglars. Then, Nixon and his aides hatched a plan to instruct the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, to impede the FBI's investigation of the crime. This was a more serious crime than the break-in. It was an abuse of presidential power and a deliberate obstruction of justice, which is... Meanwhile, seven conspirators were indicted on charges related to the Watergate affair. At the urging of Nixon's aides, five pleaded guilty to avoid trial, and the other two were convicted in January 1973. And by this time, uh, a growing amount of people, including Washington Post reporters Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, as well as trial judge John J. Sirica and members of the Senate Investigating Committee, were obviously suspecting some larger scheme was happening. Uh, at the same time, some of the conspirators began to crack under the pressure of the cover-up, and this is where anonymous whistleblower Deep Throat, which is the code name, provided key information to Woodward and Bernstein. Uh, I never remember. Uh, I wanted to look up to see. I'm gonna have to look that up later. Why? Um, if the if the identity of Deep Throat was ever re released. Can you explain why it was called Deep Throat to maybe some people who might not know? Um, I don't know why it was called Deep Throat. Because Deep Throat was the uh, the porn movie that was out, like a big motion picture that was out at the time. It was very popular in that they called this person when, or this person went by that code name, which was just like the popular Oh, okay. Porn movie yeah, that I was. I didn't know time. that's why it was. But called. back in like. Well, I mean, I knew it was a popular movie, but I didn't. Back know in why the 60s it... and 70s, like porn films were like at regular movie theaters. Right. You know, and so they actually had like box office ratings. Right. You know, um, and this was like one that was very popular at the time. And the this whistleblower went by that same name. I don't know what, why what reason but that's yeah. what they where they got the name from so a handful of his aid, uh, nixon's aides uh, did testify including white house count sorry white house counsel john dean um they also testified that nixon had secretly taped every conversation that took place in the oval office uh if they could obviously get their hands on those tapes they could be able to prove the president's guilt um but constantly Nixon was trying to fight whether they could obtain the tapes, you know, because of that he could, he was claiming that, you know, it could be releasing private security secrets and stuff like that, mm -hmm. you know, but they were, because um, his lawyers argued that the president's executive privilege allowed him to keep the tapes to himself. Uh, but then, like I said, uh, Judge Sirica, who was one of the people that was obviously against it, um, they were... As well, him as well as the Senate committee was obviously very determined to get them. So when Cox refused to stop demanding the tapes, uh, Nixon ordered that he be fired, leading several Justice Department, official, Justice Department officials to resign in protest. 
this is this event was known as the Saturday Night Massacre, uh, which took place on October twentieth, nineteen seventy three, uh, which I believe is my brother's birthday. That's weird. I think down to the year. That's really creepy. Um. Eventually, uh, Nixon agreed to surrender some, but not all of the tapes. But yeah, I looked up the Saturday Night Massacre. Basically, yeah, he he forced he forced um, fired fired somebody, and then the, basically everyone else was like, okay, this is like obviously like a coup. So people just started like resigning and protest. Mm. Um, so in. Um, uh, early in 1974, the cover-up and efforts to impede the Watergate inva- investigation began to unravel. On March 1st, a grand jury appointed by new special prosecutor indicted seven of Nixon's former aides on various charges related to the Watergate affair. The jury, unsure if they could indict, uh, indict a sitting president, called Nixon an unindicted co-conspirator. In July, the Supreme Court ordered Nixon to turn over the tapes while the president dragged his feet. The House Judiciary Committee voted to impeach Nixon for obstruction of justice, abuse of power, criminal cover-up, and several violations of the Constitution. Um, But finally, on August 5th, Nixon released the tapes, which provided undeniable evidence of his complicity in the Watergate crimes in the face of almost certain impeachment by Congress. Nixon then resigned in disgrace on August 8th, and left office the following day. Mm. Uh, interestingly enough, um, you can find all of the Watergate evidence at the Richard Nixon Presidential Library Museum, mm. um, which I thought was I, at first I thought, oh, that's a joke, you know, that there's a muse- there's a library and all of his evidence is there. Mm-hmm. But apparently, that's a thing. Like every president gets their own library. Did you know that? gonna be in the donald trump library right? like yeah, just his books right yeah his books like a, and... a place where you can eat your mcdonald's yeah a like, mcdonald's <laughs> right yeah like but it was i just didn't apparently it's uh where they're born it's the it's made in, in the same in the town where they're born and it's usually privately funded oh okay um, but it's filled with everything that happened during their term i'm looking up where donald trump was born right yeah or was he just made? Was he just manufactured? <laughs> He's just what happens when you scrape up the grease off the floor of <laughs> a fast food of KFC. You know, right. what what congeals the bottom of a grease tub that they've dumped into the ocean. Right. Not implying that KFC does that. That's but. true. <laughs> somebody did KFC would get me on, up there. But yeah, so on the uh, nixonlibrary.gov, you can find at all of the evidence that where it goes literally they have it down to sections of conspiracy thinking so they have evidence of planning then they have dirty tricks and political espionage then they have evidence of connecting it to mm. connecting the infiltration to the president then they have the cover-up which is payments and pardons to certain people then they have the investigation. Like, they have literally everything. Then they have well, the Like, tapes. Nixon's dead, so it's not... Right? He's dead, right? Um, Yeah, he's. I'm pretty sure he's dead, yeah. Um, But, like, it's it's just funny. And I'm not saying, like, they shouldn't have this, because this, this is great, because this is, like... It's history. We need to know that this mm-hmm. happened, so it doesn't happen again, which it kind of is happening right now. Um, But, like, yeah, you can actually listen to the tapes, like... um. It's pretty much widely out there. And I listened to, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes of, of some of the tapes. And yeah, he's like, they're like literally like talking about it. Like, oh, we got to do something about that. You know, like, oh, we got, we got what, what are we going to do with that? Well, we, maybe mm. we can pay him and do this. And I was like, Jesus Christ. But yeah, like they're, he's like super red handed. Like even the tapes, like when he did release just a little bit of the tapes, you know, even those were incriminating enough to take it yeah. down. But then you get all of this evidence and like, oh my God. And it was interesting because they actually go to get, they get warrants to search people's places. And I can't remember who it was. I think it was Dean Wallace or whatever. Uh, but they found in his safe a radio, a camera, and then a two microphones that would look like chapsticks. Mm. So that they were just like hanging out so they could just leave them out, you know, and record everything. Um, 
but yeah, so in closing, sorry, because um, I just want to let everyone know you can actually look up all this evidence, which I think is important because you should have like your own perspective on it, you know, even though this oh, yeah. is like obviously like this has been gone over through several times and he resigned because he knew he was guilty. Um, but six, six weeks later, after he resigned, Vice President Gerald Ford was sworn in as president and he pardoned Nixon for any crime she had committed while in office. Some of Nixon's aides were not so lucky. They were convicted of very serious offenses and sent to federal prison. Nixon's Attorney General of the United States, John Mitchell, served 19 months for his role in the scandal, while Watergate mastermind J. Gordon Liddy, a former FBI agent, served four and a half years. Nixon's Chief of Staff, H.R. Haldeman, spent 19 months in prison, while John Ehrlichman spent 18 for attempting to cover up the break-in. Nixon, Nixon himself never admitted to any criminal wrongdoing, though he mm. did acknowledge p- using poor judgment. It's like, what the hell? Like, he just got off scot-free and all his other minions had to pay for what he did. And they, I mean, and they even got, like, at the most four years. Once you're like, off scot-free, why would you go back and admit you did something wrong? Like, you kind of just got to be like, uh, No, you that's know. true. No, that's true. I'm not, I'm just saying that, like, it's, it's just infuriating that, like, that the pardon thing even exists, you know, that's like so stupid. It's yeah. like so anti, um, like democracy, you know, is to basically yeah. be like, no, but you get like, uh, you, you get like two free wishes. I mean, like, maybe there can... have been a few people in history who might've deserved the pardons that they got, you know, but yeah, it is kind of every now and then there's weird, one. Yeah. I guess that, presidents get to do that stuff no i I agree yeah i mean i know the only pardon other than that that i know of is that clinton pardoned uh what's her name hearst patty hearst but it's like why (laughs) like why like like like, was it like a like one of those games where you fold up and you open it up and close them you know like a cootie catcher and he's like oh under here is patty hurst i'll just pick patty hurst because i get to do so many pardons i'm running it's i'm almost out of here i'm about to be impeached uh uh, patty hurst Hurst. right (laughs) i don't know i have no idea why he pardoned her because she was like already doing fine more on Patty Hearst, if you you can listen to Hollywood's Haunted or the podcast we talk yeah, about, we true. definitely yeah, talk about we, her, we definitely go in there a, little bit. a little bit more, um, you know. But yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, that's like Nixon in the Watergate. Uh, as far as like, like I said, like totally check out the library. I, a lot. I got some of this information from WhiteHouse.gov as well as the NixonLibrary.gov, and it was also. It was pretty straightforward, you know. There was mm. no like sugarcoating, sugarcoating it. it, which I thought was interesting. Uh, then I got a lot of this from History.com. I also watched a documentary uh, about the Nixon tapes on National Geographic. Um, and Ooh. but uh, if you want to watch something that's a little bit more entertaining, you can watch the Frost Nixon film, which apparently is really good. And I never, never. Finally sat down and watched it. I suggested, even though I I've never seen it. it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I hear it's really good. I mean, Michael Sheen is in it, so I'm just going to say it's good. Uh, <laughs> there's also, like, um, obviously Futurama. And, you know, that's... Where you should get all of your... All of your Nixon information. Yeah. So, just for the record, Donald Trump was born in Queens. So that will be where the Donald Trump Library is. And it's going to consist of... The Art of the Deal and some magazine clippings, um, so you know, we McDonald's. Apologize. We apologize in advance to everybody in the Queens. And uh, the, the toilet seat will be golden, mm-hmm. at least, you know, so there's that, you know. Yeah, you know, not to make it political. I don't really care who you like politically, but fuck that guy. Um, you know. Nixon also was pretty horrible. Well, there's like hasn't really been too many presidents who are all that great, though. I mean, it's, that's got to be a hard job, though, to have. You know, even like, you know, you you can say like Obama was like a great president, but like there were he wore a tan suit. You know, motherfucker wore a fucking tan suit. Like, come on. 
<laughs> you know, but no, like it, it can't be a hard, it can't be an easy job, you know, and there's going to be things that, you know, are going to be seen as negative to some people and positive to some people. And it's like, you know, it's, I'm not going to say it's an easy job. I, you know, <laughs> coming from someone who's worked at restaurants most of their life and gets paid to point at things and tell people what it is. That's pretty much exactly what it's like to be president. It's yeah. Pretty sure. Pretty sure. It's just like a restaurant job. (laughs) Um, So anyways, I'm going to talk about the time when President Nixon met Elvis Presley. And yes, there is a mockumentary called When Elvis meets Nixon or when Nixon meets Elvis, something like that. Um, there's a lot about this online. There's a great drunk history of this where Jack Black plays Elvis. Anything that Jack Black touches is gold. And I love that man. Um, he is my celebrity crush. If you want to know Jack Black, that's a good one though. That is actually a pretty good one. No, that, you know, that adds up. You're also a big so, I like Meatloaf. He's nice. Saying. Yeah, that's like, uh, like that could be like two more similar people right there. Oh my gosh! If <laughs> Jack Black played Meatloaf in the biopic, in a bi, well, yeah, I'm sure they played similar characters on Broadway. I'm pretty sure both of them played King Herod at some point in Jesus Christ. I'm pretty sure both of them have. Yeah, but you know, and that's that's a very similar type. Is Anyways, Jack Black in Rocky Horror. Uh, no, but you yes. Yeah, you can find a video of him online singing okay. the Time Warp, but he dressed up as Riff Raff. Oh, damn. damn. So, okay. but <laughs> it's pretty awesome because actually his voice is much similar. Jack Black's voice is much similar to Richard O'Brien's voice yeah. with the high pitches than it is to Meatloaf. He, you know, but whatever. Anyways, tangent over. Uh, so I got most of my information. You didn't list where you got your information from. Oh, you did at the end. Okay, well, I was looking online in my phone. I was looking at stuff in, at Nordstrom yeah, I that, that I want to buy. Yeah, is there a Nordstrom? I was talking. It's, yeah, is there a Nordstrom nice. here in Las Vegas? We should find one. I Yes, please look it up while I'm talking. Yes, please do. I want you to do that. So, I got most of my information from Smith, Smithsonian Magazine, but the website of it, which is actually pretty good, um wikipedia of course elvis.fandom.com uh as well as like i said uh the drunk history is where i found out about this so if you have been inhabiting a small little condo that happens to be underneath a rock and you don't know who elvis presley is he is he was a musician um mostly in the 50s and 60s was when he was most popular in the 70s. He did have a little bit of a Vegas stint. Um, But I will tell you a little bit about his personal life and get into uh, what happened when he met Nixon. So Elvis Aaron Presley uh, was born on January 8th, 1935 in Tupelo, Mississippi to Vernon Elvis and Gladys Love uh, Presley in a two-room shotgun house that his father built for the occasion. A shotgun house is... I should click on this and find out what a shotgun house... What, the, what is a shotgun house? It sounds like a cool house. Google it right now. Anyways, um, Elvis has an identical twin as well. Jesse Garen Presley. However, he was delivered 35 minutes before him and stillborn. So he does not have an identical twin, unfortunately. That got dark very quickly there. Sorry, um, everyone. So a shotgun house is a narrow rectangular domestic residence, usually no more than about 12 feet wide, with rooms arranged one behind the other and doors at each end of the house. So you're walking through... Through the rooms. Through everyone's room, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. But that's probably easy to build that way. Right, yeah. And uses the least amount of materials, you know. Yeah, that's cute. Yeah, so you just I want one of those. Way through. You can see on the right the other person's 
Yeah. Yeah. That's cute. Hmm. I wouldn't mind that. Some southern living. That's fine. I really want to live in the south. Although I don't know if I will. Done. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Uh, If I will regret that. Um, honestly, moving from California to a state that is not California was a big culture shock. And I know moving to the South would be a big, big culture shock. But I think having a culture shock in your life is actually very important to learn about other people and how other people live, positive and negative. Presley became close to both of his parents and formed especially close bond with his mother Uh, The family attended an Assembly of God church where he found his musical inspiration. So if you actually listen to Elvis, he is very soulful, very soulful, very much the Southern sound, but a unique sound of his own by far. Um, Presley's father, Vernon, was German, Scottish, and English origins. Presley's mother, Gladys, was of Scott-Irish with some... Uh, French Norman ancestry. Uh, His mother, Gladys, and the rest of the family apparently believed that the great-grandmother, Morning Dove White, was Cherokee. With a name like that, I would believe it. Morning Dove White. That is beautiful. So this was confirmed by Elvis's granddaughter in 2017. And Elaine Dundee in her biography supports this belief. Uh, Gladys was regarded by relatives and friends as the dominant member of the small family. Vernon moved from odd job to the next, showing little ambition. The family often relied on help from neighbors and government food assistance. So basically, they weren't well off. In 1938, they lost their home after Vernon was found guilty of altering a check written by his landowner and sometime employer. So he basically forged a check and he was jailed for eight months while Gladys and Elvis moved in with relatives. In September of 1941, Presley entered first grade at East Tupelo Consolidated. Consolidated. That is the name of the school, I guess. Baby Elvis. I bet that was so cute. Little baby. I just imagine when you have, if you ever see those uh, videos of Bruno Mars, when he was like eight years old as like an Elvis impersonator, that's how I imagine baby Elvis is. Um, where Polly Shore is like interviewing Bruno Mars. It's a thing. And if you haven't seen it, you need to look it up. Um, so he was encouraged to enter a singing contest after impressing his school teacher with a rendition of Red Foley's country song, Old Shep during morning prayers the contest held in mississippi uh held at the mississippi alabama fair and dairy show on october 3rd of 1945 was his first public performance the uh the 10 year old presley was dressed as a cowboy he stood on a chair to reach the microphone and sang old shep he recalled placing fifth Uh uh-uh what a travesty little baby elvis should have been first place uh So a few months later, Presley received his first guitar for his birthday. He had hoped for something else. Different accounts say that he wanted either a bicycle or a rifle. (laughs) That's, I wanted a bicycle. Uh, Over the following year, he received basic guitar lessons from two of his uncles and the new pastor at the family church. Presley recalled, I took the guitar and I watched people and I learned to play a little bit, but I would never sing in public. I was very shy about it. In November of 1948, the family moved to Memphis, Tennessee, which I'm sure was a big culture shock for them and for little baby Elvis here. And after residing for nearly a year in in rooming houses, they were granted a two-bedroom apartment in the public housing complex known as the Lauderdale Courts. Enrolled at L.C. Humes High School, Presley received only a C in music in eighth grade. When his music teacher told him that he had no aptitude for singing, he brought in his guitar and the next day sang a recent hit, Keep Them Cold Icy Fingers Off Me, to prove otherwise. 
A classmate later recalled that the teacher agreed that Elvis was right when he said that she didn't appreciate his kind of singing. Wow, that's a fucking dick thing to say. You're right. I don't appreciate your kind of singing. (laughs) What a bitch. I mean, she admitted that, like, yeah. That sounds like an underhanded compliment, you know? I mean, yeah, because she was proven wrong. Yeah, and teachers don't like when they're wrong, in my experience, especially when they're proven wrong by the rebellious kid. Or the fat goth girl. Um, during his junior year, Presley began to stand out more among his classmates, largely because of his appearance. He grew his sideburns and styled his hair with rose oil and Vaseline, which is like the signature young Elvis look, you know, a little later on his little slightly different in his look in his free time. He would head down to Beale street, the heart of Memphis thriving, uh, Memphis is thriving blue scene and gaze longingly at the wild flashy clothes in the window of Lansky, Lansky brothers. Uh, by his senior year, he was wearing those clothes. So in August of 1953, Presley checked into the offices of Sun Records. He aimed to pay for a few minutes of studio time to record a two-sided uh acetate disc my happiness and that's when your heartache began uh so those were the two songs he was going to sing and record he later claimed that he intended uh intended the record to be a birthday gift for his mother or that he was merely interested in what uh he sounded like although there was a much cheaper amateur record making service nearby at the nearby general store uh the his biographer later argued that he chose the son specifically that so he would be discovered so and you know like if you ever hear elvis which i assume most of you have like once you hear his voice it is like this magnetic charismatic like tone that cannot be matched by any other and you know, is all he needed to do was just say one note. And I'm sure they were like, who is this guy? Mm -hmm. So he, he was asked by the receptionist, Marion Keisker, uh, what kind of singer he was. And he responded by singing, I sing all kinds. And when she pressed him on uh, who he sounded like, he repeatedly answered, I don't sound like nobody like that. And uh, after he recorded, the son boss, Sam Phillips, asked Keisker uh, to note down the young man's name, to which she did. And her own commentary, she wrote down, good ballad singer, hold. So that basically was the beginning of him being noticed. Um, He would begin recording uh, for Sun Records. He had a very specific sound, which was very, um, they say, very much like the African-American music at the time, which was very Southern. Um, And, you know, this would also attract a wider audience. He was on, like, rhythm acoustic guitar accompanied by a lead guitarist and a bassist, so he did an up-tempo, backseat-driven fusion of country music and rhythm and blues, which is great. Like, it's very much a new sound of the time, combining pop with very traditional Southern sounds. Um, So he basically had a pretty good career uh, for a while, and was you know the heartthrob he had a film come out 1956 love me tender uh in 1958 though he was drafted into the military so he was in the military for about two years so that kind of put his stuff on hold but you know when he came back he was able to have uh concerts in 1960s he made hollywood films um, there's he's in quite a few films uh, that you can look up. Uh, the Heartbreak Hotel. 
in a bunch you know uh so in 1968 following a seven year break from live performances he returned to the stage in acclaimed television comeback special called elvis which led to an extended las vegas concert residency and a string of highly profitable tours so he had a residency at what was the international hotel here here in las vegas where I may or may not be residing at the moment. Um, The International Hotel is where the Hilton is. Uh, It is located at 3000 South Paradise Road, Las Vegas, Nevada in 89109. The hotel is now known as the Las Vegas Hilton. I think it's, that seems right. Like that's still. Yeah, I know it's not Resorts World, but. There's another Hilton. I'm pretty sure we can see it from here. If we could look through walls right now. (laughs) Or if I was looking out the window. So having failed in Vegas 13 years prior, his return to, uh, to Vegas, Elvis was understandably nervous. He had, uh, but he had no reason for concern. He sang great. The fans' response was over- overwhelming. The series of concerts broke uh, house records, drawing more than 100,000 people and grossing uh, $1.5 million. He earned uh, reportedly $100,000 per week. So, um, basically, he... Recorded throughout, you know, uh, the U.S., the U.K. He did a whole bunch of tours during this time. And, you know, this was kind of like Elvis's comeback in 1968 into the 70s. And this is when he starts donning his, like, more older look, like the, the studded jumpsuits and, you know, the sunglasses. Like, this is more of a looser version of Elvis and this is also when he starts dabbling in alcohol and drugs so uh yeah um which you can kind of tell that Elvis is getting into the 60s 70s culture you Mm. know just by looking at him so this was an interesting little fact. Cassandra Peterson, she had a career out here as a Las Vegas showgirl for for a short time. And uh, she claims that Elvis was the one to tell her, don't get caught up in this life. You know, don't, don't waste your life being a showgirl. You're going to do so much more. And after that, she ended up joining Second City and becoming... Elvira, Cassandra Peterson, uh, met Elvis Presley during a period in Las Vegas where she was working as a showgirl. She recalled their encounter saying he was so anti-drug when I met met him. I mentioned to him that I smoke marijuana and he was just appalled. He said, don't ever do that again. Presley was not only deeply opposed to recreational drugs, he also rarely drank. And I'm like air quoting so hard right now. Uh, Several of his family members had been alcoholics and it was a fate that he intended to avoid. So going back to the D.A.R.E. program, you know, like how many people do you know that were in like the D.A.R.E. program or were like these like real staunch anti-drug people, you know, that you find out later in their life became like raging alcoholics, drug users. Like I can think of a few and, you know, it's always the person who's so tightly opposed, you know, that ends up being the one who becomes victim to that type of lifestyle. So anyways, this all brings us to December of 1970. So, Elvis's father, Vernon, and wife, Priscilla, which he had married Priscilla at this point, Priscilla Presley, 
uh, who I love and I want to emulate her so much. I, I just want her hair. Anyways, tangent over. Uh, so wife Priscilla complained that he had spent too much on Christmas presents, more than a hundred thousand for 32 handguns and 10 Mercedes Benzes. Yeah. So he was just buying everybody a gun in a car. Uh, so peeved Elvis drove to the airport and caught the next flight, which happened to be bound for Washington. He checked into a hotel, then got bored and decided to fly to Los Angeles. Elvis called. So, okay. So he, he calls his manager, Jerry Schilling, um, who I believe in the drunk history is played by David Grohl. Um, or, uh, the guy who does drunk history might be playing the manager as well, but I know David Kroll was in this one as well, which made me very happy. Um, the lead singer of the Foo Fighters. Oh, Foo Fighters. Okay. okay. Yeah. Dave Kroll. Yeah. Maybe it doesn't go by David. That's, that's what I was, uh, maybe that's why I was talking David, about. David. Sorry, sorry. sorry. Me and him are on a more formal yeah, name yeah, basis. Yeah, yeah. So he calls me by my full name, Tia. Um. <laughs> Tia the... <laughs> Tiafia. Um, so anyways, so he, so Jerry Schilling says he called and asked me to pick him up at the airport. And so he goes and he picks him up at the LA airport at 3am, uh, to chauffeur him to basically to Jerry Schilling's mansion. Elvis was traveling with some guns and his collection of police badges and he decided that what he really wanted was a badge from the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs back in Washington. So uh, this is what Priscilla Presley wrote in her memoir. The narc badge represented some kind of ultimate power to him. With the Federal Narcotics badge, he believed he could legally enter any country, both wearing guns and carrying any drugs he wished. So he gets this idea that he's just like, I want a narc badge, <laughs> you know? And then they won't bug me at LAX for my- uh, Large amounts of cocaine. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and the 32 guns I just bought to go give to my friends for Christmas, that's, you know? That's hilarious. <laughs> so after one day in Los <clears throat> Angeles, Elvis and Schilling uh, fly him back to the Capitol. He didn't say why, Schilling recalls, but I thought the badge might be a part of the reason, you think? Um, right. So, uh, on the red eight of Washington, Elvis scribbled a letter to President Nixon. Sir, I can and will be of any service that I can to help the country out, he wrote. All he wanted in return was a federal agent badge. So... All he wanted in return was a federal agent badge. I'll, I'll help the country out in any way I find possible. All I want is a wee little baby badge. Here. I just need a license to kill. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I would love to meet you, he added, informing Nixon that he'd be staying at the Washington Hotel under the alias John Burroughs. I will be there for as long as it takes to get the credentials of a federal agent. So after they landed, Elvis and Schilling took a limo to the White House. Elvis dropped off his letter at the entrance gate at about 6.30 a.m. Once they checked into their hotel, Elvis left for the office of Bureau, uh, so the offices of the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. He got a meeting with a deputy, deputy director, but not approval for a bureau badge. Well, I would hope not. Right. Um, where do I sign my name for a badge? Mm -hmm. uh, meanwhile, his letter was delivered to Nixon's aide, uh, Egil Bud Krogh, who happened to be an Elvis fan. Krogh loved the idea of a Nixon-Presley summit and persuaded his bosses, including White House Chief of Staff Bob Hildman, uh, to make it happen. Crow called the Washington Hotel and set up the meeting through Schilling. Around noon, Elvis arrived at the White House with Schilling and bodyguard Sony West, uh, who had just arrived from Memphis. Arrayed in a purple velvet suit 
with a huge gold belt buckle and amber sunglasses, Elvis came bearing gifts. A Colt uh, 45 pistol mounted in a display case that Elvis had plucked off the wall of his Los Angeles mansion. Mm-hmm. He literally just grabbed it on the way out, I'm sure. <laughs> right. yeah, exactly. uh, which the Secret Service confiscated before Krogh escorted Elvis without his entourage to meet Nixon. When he first walked into the Oval Office, he seemed a little awestruck, Krogh recalls, but he quickly warmed to the situation. So he expressed his patriotism and explained how he believed he could reach out to the hippies to help them combat the drug culture he and the president abhorred. He asked Nixon for a Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs badge to add to similar items he had begun collecting and to signify official sanction of his patriotic efforts. Nixon, who apparently found the encounter awkward, expressed a belief that Presley could send a positive message to the young people and that it was therefore important that he retain his credibility. (laughs) Like this is so backwards. (laughs) Oh, maybe this young man's got a good point here. He could uh, reach out to those youths of America. So maybe uh, I should do whatever he says. After listening to those Watergate tapes, man, it did seem like he went to like the extreme measures really quickly yeah oh we probably need to just fire him and uh, we just need to pay him off oh we just need to <laughs> yeah it doesn't seem like he had all of his marbles there that's for sure yeah so presley told nixon that the beatles whose songs he regularly performed in his concert during the era exemplified what he saw as a trend of anti-americanism well they're not american Okay, Presley and his friends previously had a four-hour get-together with the Beatles at his home in in Bel Air, California, in August of 1965. On hearing reports of the meeting, Paul McCartney later said that he felt a bit betrayed. The great joke was that we were taking illegal drugs, and look what happened to him. A reference to Presley's early death linked to prescription drug abuse, which I will talk about in a little bit here. So while the White House photographer Ollie Adkins snapped photographs, which you can see these photographs online of, uh, and I put one up on my weird little podcast um, Instagram, uh, the president and the king shook hands. Then Elvis showed off his police badges. Why does he have multiple police badges? That is like the bigger question here. I mean, especially displaying them too. Look at me. Look at my cop badges. I got a whole bunch. Why don't I have cop badges? Yeah, exactly. But do cops pull him over and he's like, no, I didn't get a speeding ticket. I'd like your badge instead. Oh, like, my God. Uh, okay, you're Elvis Presley. So, yeah, sure. <sighs> yeah. I think this just, like, reminds me of, like, so we have, like, at my job, there is a haunted artifact that people leave gifts to. And there's some things that people leave behind that I'm like, um, don't you need that? Like, IDs, you know, uh, like their room keys, uh, like their MGM Players Club card. Like, don't you want? Don't you want are, that? <laughs> are there lanyards so they can pick up their? T-shirts? Their lanyards yeah. <laughs> where they're supposed to pick up their shirts at the end. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. Okay. You know, if anyone ever leaves a police badge there. Uh, this is just going to remind me of this. So <laughs> no, nah, I won't take it. I swear, but <laughs> my police badges I got. Um, so anyways, uh, uh, so I'm on your side. Elvis told Nixon, adding that he had been studying drug culture and the communist brainwashing. He then asked the president for a badge from the Bureau of Nar- uh, Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. Can we get him a badge? Nixon asked. Wait, do Nixon. Can we get him a badge? That was pretty good. Uh, Nixon (laughs) asked Krogh. Krogh said that he could, and Nixon ordered it done. So that's how easy it is to get a badge from Nixon. Elvis was ecstatic. In a surprising, spontaneous gesture, Krogh wrote, uh, Elvis put his left arm around the president and hugged him. 
Before leaving, Elvis asked Nixon to say hello to Schilling and West, and the two men were escorted into the Oval Office. Nixon playfully punched Schilling on the shoulder and gave both men White House cufflinks. Which I want. I think that would be pretty freaking cool. Oh, so he gives them cufflinks, and then Elvis says, Mr. President, they have wives too. Like, that's not enough, is that he gives you a narcotics badge, he meets your friends, he gives them cufflinks, you know, but you're like, give them something for their wives. So Nixon gives them a White House, each a White House brooch, you know, which I think would also be cool to have. Oh, that is cool. Uh, I think Elvis realizes, like, I'm, I'm Elvis. I can get whatever I want. You're just the president. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so after Krogh took him to lunch at the White House mess hall, Elvis received his gift, the nar- the narc badge. At Elvis' request, the meeting was kept secret. A year later, columnist Jack Anderson broke the story. Presley gets narcotics bureau br- badge, uh, but few people seem to really care at that point. Hmm. In 1973, Presley gave his first concert by a solo artist to be broadcast around the world. Uh, on uh, Aloha from Hawaii. So he did have a big following in Hawaii. He did concerts in Hawaii. I believe he lived there for a while, which is probably why Bruno Mars uh, was a big fan. Bruno Mars's parents were uh, owned a Elvis um, nightclub that they had Elvis impersonators in at the nightclub, and his dad was an Elvis impersonator. And Bruno Mars was like in the Guinness World Records, I want to say, for being the youngest Elvis impersonator. Uh, At like eight years old, he is like impersonating Elvis. And it is the cutest thing in the world. Nothing is cuter than seeing baby Bruno Mars be Elvis. Um, So Presley's divorce was finalized on October 9th, 1973. So he divorces Priscilla. So by then his health was in... A major decline. Twice during the year, he had overdosed on barbiturates, spending three days in a coma in his hotel suite after the first incident. Towards the end of 1973, he was hospitalized, semi-comatose from the effects of a pethidine uh, addiction. So he was declining very quickly towards the early 70s. Um, so despite his failing health in 1974, he undertook another intensive touring schedule. Years of prescription drug abuse and unhealthy eating habits compromised his health. So on the evening of Tuesday, August 16th, 1977, Presley was scheduled to fly out of Memphis to begin another tour. That afternoon, Ginger Alden discovered him, uh, in an unresponsive state on a bathroom floor. Uh, Ginger Alden was his uh, girlfriend at the time. Uh, According to eyewitness accounts, Elvis looked as if his entire body had completely frozen in a seated position while using the toilet and that he had fallen forward in that fixated position directly in front of it. It was clear that from that time, whatever hit him, uh, to the moment that he landed on the floor, Elvis hadn't uh, hadn't moved. Attempts to revive to revive him failed, and he was officially pronounced dead at Baptist Memorial Hospital at three thirty p.m. He was only forty two years old. Damn. While an autopsy undertaken uh, the same day Presley died was still in progress, Memphis medical exam examiner Jerry Francisco announced that the immediate cause of death was cardiac arrest. Uh, asked if drugs were involved, he declared that drugs played no role in Presley's death. In fact, drug use was heavily implicated in Presley's death. Uh, the pathologist conducted the autopsy, thought it possible, for instance, that he had suffered anaphylactic shock brought on by the coding pe- coding pills uh, he'd gotten from his dentist, to which he was known to have a mild allergy. A pair of lab reports filled two, filed two months later strongly suggested that 
polypharmacy was the primary cause of death. Uh, one reported 14 drugs in Elvis's system, 10, uh, 10 in significant quantity. So, uh, basically, um, it also says that Elvis had an enlarged heart for a long time that together with his drug habit caused his death, but he was difficult to diagnose and it was a judgment call. So, you know, it's sad, you know, and 42 is not, not an age to die, you know, like that is just so young and we missed out on a lot of beautiful music and a lot of what this person's life could be. However, you know, it is quite ironic that he's telling the president that he wants this drug badge so he can fight, you know, the war on drugs and all that when it's clear that the Beatles even said that they were doing drugs prior to this. And then he ends up having 14 drugs in his system, you know, not, but like, uh, so, I mean, it is seven years later, you know, but this clearly had been going on for a long time. So Presley's funeral was held at Graceland on Thursday, August 18th, outside the gates, a car plowed into a group of fans, killing two young women and critically injuring the third. About 80,000 people lined the processional route at uh, to Forest Hill Cemetery, where Presley was buried next to his mother. Within a few weeks, Way Down topped the, ca- the country and UK singles charts. Following an attempt to steal Presley's body in late August, the remains of both Presley and his mother were exhumed and reburied in Graceland Meditation Garden on October 2nd. And that is just a little bit about Elvis Presley in general and him meeting Nixon and wanting this narc badge. And apparently, if you have a big enough following, you can just ask for one and get one. Makes sense. <laughs> the 70s were such a wild time. Oh, my God. Like, he literally just showed up in Washington and was like, I want to meet the president. I want a badge. And Nixon's like, you know, this young man's got a good point. Let's uh, let's make it happen. Like, what in the corruption? Ah, like, what in the corruption hell is going on? I think it's like, I don't know, like a slight exchange of power, too, sort of. Like, you know, like Nixon saw that, like, oh, this is going to make me look good, you know? Like, and also yeah. this, this badge doesn't really do shit. And also, yeah. like, if Elvis was to show up somewhere and be like, well, I got this badge, and be like, okay, well, they're going to let him go through. But they're going to, like, let him go through and then, like, hit up next and be like, just so you know, Elvis is here. Yeah. You know, like, just, just to, you know. This like, also seems watching, like. Uh, Key and Peel recently, and they're talking about him, them meeting Obama. And then, like, like Key later on did the, the president's dinner. Like he hosted it. Oh yeah, yeah. As like a character from the show, and it's like, oh yeah. I think it's like yeah, an exchange of like power. Power, you know. Well, like I'm not gonna lie, like Nixon probably actually did want to meet Elvis, or maybe he's like, yeah, like who would? Yeah, you know. But this seems like one of those decisions that you make, and you're like, oh yeah, everyone's gonna love me for it, and then afterwards you're like, wait, this is highly illegal. What are the implications are of this? Like maybe I shouldn't just be handing out these badges like cookies, you know? Yeah, exactly. Anyways. I give anybody else badges that I forgot about. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That was a good episode. A little bit about Nixon. And so uh, follow our Instagram, our Facebook. And uh, that podcast also has a Patreon, HH the podcast on Patreon where you can get some more exclusive information um, and videos about things, t-shirts, t-shirts buttons. S- buttons and stuff. Uh, please email us at myweirdlittlepodcast at gmail.com or hollywoodshaunted at gmail.com uh, where you can ask us questions. You can request videos. We haven't had that many people making requests, but I'm more than happy to do a subject that... Uh, you know, you know about that you think would be a good episode. 
So uh, other than that, be weird, do weird stuff, you know, be yourself. I got to come up with a better sign off. So if you could email us a, better uh, <laughs> a good sign off, that would uh, be helpful. Um, so yeah, creep it weird, everyone. Creep it weird. Creep it weird. Creep, creep it real. Creep it weird. <laughs> okay, that's not it. All right. Weird Have a good night. Real. Weird it real. <laughs>